0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam.
1: I'm Candace Fox-Smith.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week our guest is John Della Volpe, the director of polling at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics, where he runs the Harvard Youth Poll. He's also the author of the book Fight: How Gen Z is channeling their fear and passion to save America. So This conversation, as you might guess, is all about Gen Z. We've talked before on the show about boomers, about millennials, but never explicitly about Gen Z, the events that shaped their political ideology and um, how they're tackling some of the the challenges that their generation confronts. So excited to have John here for this conversation.
0: I, I just want to start with the the kind of negative portrayal that this generation gets. And, you know, and some of it is not, you know, it's not, didn't fall out of the sky, right? I mean, there is, I don't think there's a prof in any college in America who can't tell you a story about a student who didn't do the work, didn't show up, and then comes after grades have been announced and says, no, this is not acceptable, I have to get a better grade. There's no argument. There's no, you know, contention that they deserve it. It's just, no, I need this. And then there's always stories of helicopter parents too. And so that is something, you know, that is part of this generation and that you hear a lot about in in the media. Uh, Jonathan Hyde talks about the coddled generation, et cetera. But here we're getting another story and one that is equally, oh, no. No, that's not true. That is, it's significantly more important, at both for bo- both in terms of empirical reality and also in terms of it, the implications and the importance. So, yeah, it's it's a great, um, it's a, it's a really. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: So, you know, one of the things I think even about that story is that about the kind of uh, Gen Zer, the the grade grabbing Gen Zer is that the easy story to tell is the story that we always tell about entitlement and snowflakes and all of these things. The other perhaps uh, hot take slash unpopular opinion of my own is that we could also read that same great grabbing tendency as a larger symptom of like whatever fears of the job market students have or you know, whatever. I don't know. I mean, I teach at a place where um if a student gets a B plus, uh, one B plus, they cannot graduate with honors. So they have a lot of anxiety around these issues. So their grade grabbing sometimes is because. They are fearful that they are not going to get into med school or law school or business school or whatever, whether they're right or wrong is one thing. But I do think that there is another side to the story, which is why I really appreciate this book and this work, because it talks about like, okay, you know, we see these tendencies, but what do they mirror um, what do they tell us about a larger set of structural issues that this group is facing that we really need to take seriously and understand why they might be oriented towards um, policy, politics, democracy, capitalism, protest, you know, working in or outside of traditional modes of political behavior is not just because they have decided amongst themselves to misbehave, but instead, because they are responding to the structure that they have to navigate.
0: Well, and and not just the structure, but also for for John, the the most defining feature is trauma, right? That this generation has experienced, he says, more trauma in their young lives that any any generation since you know the the uh, the silent generation of the depression of world war II. and and so you know you have a a generation that is uniquely experiencing depression and anxiety and you know i mean the most arresting statistic in here is that 24% of Zoomers have a thought about self-harm. I mean, that is one in four, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, and you know, we're talking about the, you know, children or, or young adults who, you know, all through their lives, right? Before they even reach consciousness, you had 9-11. Then you had the, the, the great recession, housing crisis. Uh, you had COVID, you had uh, the Trump presidency, you had George Floyd, you had event after event that really just marked a different condition in which they grew up where nothing, oh, school shootings. How can I forget that? Parkland, etc. So it, it, they grew up in a world where nothing was safe, where everything was dangerous, or you know, far more dangerous than it was from for say my generation growing up, and that that is you know where you start by understand in terms if you want to understand this generation.
1: So the reason why it's important that we focus on just generations over over time one is because generational trends are one of the most uh, major, one of the most important mechanisms of social change over time. And scholars uh, who study generational cohorts recognize that groups, right, come into the, you know, come into a particular set of, of circumstances, they come of age and a particular historical moment. And those events and that context can shape the way that they view the world, that they Think about um, their political attitudes, their orientation toward really big ideas and structures, institutions, families, you know, capitalism, democracy, ideology, so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, so I think that that lays out some of the conditions and the background of Gen Z very well. And John obviously has a lot more insights to share from his work uh, with the youth poll and that he talks about in his book. So let's go to the interview. John DeLaVolpe, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today.
3: It is great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jenna.
2: So I wonder if you could start off um, just by reminding us of the events in history that have shaped Gen Z's political identity, political consciousness, and maybe how those effects have shaped that political identity.
3: Sure, so I've been uh, studying young Americans generally since since 2000, right So that includes all of the millennials and now a good a good portion of Gen Z. So that perspective is is really helpful, I think and, con- and you know and, and, and some comparisons. And what I argue is that I don't think there's been any generation in 75 years since the greatest generation who's dealt with more trauma more quickly. Um, before neuroscience tells us that the human brain is mature, which is generally age of 25, then this generation, Gen Z. And I think that impacts so much of, of, of who they are, who they want to be, and, and, and their views of this country. Just give you one example to start. You know, when I talk about millennials, you know, and, and I think the, the broad definition of like a Gen Z-er versus a millennial, to me, is beyond like, the, the, the years in which you were born is, do you have a working memory of 9-11? More specifically, September 12th or September 13th, when we came together as as a nation. Um, and if the answer is yes, you're a millennial. If the answer is it's a little fuzzy, maybe a zillennial, like, uh, like my my oldest of my three. And, and the answer is no, uh, I think you're pretty squarely in that Gen Z bucket which means that they don't have that memory of coming together. They don't have really any memory of seeing America at our best or united. Um, So that impacts their view of patriotism, exceptionalism, democracy. But then when we look through – You know the 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 last you know fifteen years or so of their lives, where I think that's been met with uh, just constant, basically, kind of disquiet and chaos. You know, for many Zoomers, their first, even if it's somewhat hazy, family memory. Maybe more stressful than others. You know, when we had so many so many Americans dealing with the impact of the Great Recession, eighty percent of uh, of Americans lost twenty percent of their wealth. Um, very stressful time. Gen Zers are then heading into into school, elementary school, when, again, there should be some some safety and some some feeling of security. And of course, it's anything but. You know, regardless of of who you were or what party you might be affiliated in later in life, you were sitting on your desks, you know, Mm -hmm. preparing for these red school shooter drills before they could even process this. By the time the middle school age and and high school age, sadly they were dealing with far more, far more death, you know, from opioids or suicide or shootings. And certainly I dealt with when I was their age and that's before we really kind of count the tolls of concerns about climate white nationalism, systemic racism, and of course, COVID. So it's been a pretty challenging, you know, decade or two for all of us, but I think even more challenging for Gen Z.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that they did not witness that national, that moment of national unity that came after 9-11. But yet you also describe Gen Z as more empathetic than previous generations. So I wonder where that sense of empathy comes from.
3: I I do think that's one of the the key characteristics um, of of Gen Z, and, and when I would ask them in in town halls and focus groups um, why you vote, I I, I would hear uh, I would I would hear because I voted for my great grandmother who didn't have the right to vote. When we're voting for that DACA recipient. Um, we or inviting them to protect the rights of somebody. And like as soon as they were turning eighteen, like I felt like they were just out there to kind of protect those more vulnerable than themselves. Right. I wouldn't blame them with all the trauma and chaos I described for them to essentially kind of be checking out and be concerned only about themselves. But this 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 sense of empathy, I think it comes from a couple of different places. I think one it, it comes from seeing again those uh, you know, cohorts within their generation that society has marginalized in some way, um, you know, through race or some sort of, you know, gender identity that might be kind of different than, than the norm. And, and seeing those struggles firsthand, I think, kind of builds empathy. Right. One. And then I also think we talk so much as we should, I think, about the, uh, the, the, the challenges and uh, the detriments associated with social media. But I also think there is an element of a uh, of, of connected element where people can see others in their in their struggles and, and, and try to identify themselves in, in some way. So I think those are a couple of elements. And of course, you know, it's, it's what's 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 interesting and intriguing is obviously the parent side of responsibility and in a, in and in a role in this, that essentially Gen X parents, they may not vote. They may not vote the same way as our kids do. And many, most of them, many of them don't, but they, they certainly did instill some sense of empathy
2: yeah you know thinking about the the Gen X parents and even further back to to boomer generations, you invoke when thinking about the older generations the shining city on a hill and how Gen Z very much does not share that view of of America or really starts to question the idea of of American exceptionalism even and so I wonder if you can say more about. Their vision of the American dream, or you know what what America mm. means to them, what what it conjures when you ask them in these town halls and focus groups and things. Yeah,
3: yeah, and um, and this is uh, this is important nuance, I think, because I don't think there uh, so many. You'll you'll find in a survey, you know, when when there's a measure, and 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 we do it at Harvard and through my other work in social sphere as well. We'll ask relative levels of patriotism and love for the country, those sorts of things. And and there's always a headline typically like on Fox News saying, you know, younger Americans aren't patriotic. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that's just a very different definition of patriotism than uh, an overly politicized um, definition of patriotism than they're comfortable with. Um, And they argue, and I believe, that questioning America, that, again, they don't see America at our best. Is a form of patriotism, and they're using every tool I think in their civic toolbox to to volunteer, to vote, to organize, to protest, to do anything that they can to um, to to make America kind of fulfill its its potential. Um, and they and regarding American exceptionalism, they question the role that we can have setting on the moral stage you know if there's so much inequality um, and systemic racism and those sorts of things on our own shore so there's question how much credibility we have in that so that's i think um, some of the uh, some of the important nuance and background mm-hmm. regarding the their definition of, of of the american dream i think it's 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 simple and 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 frankly perhaps more mature um, than, than many might expect. I ask this question a lot in a variety of different ways. I might ask about best life or good life or, you know, what you aspire to. And uh, it's the simple things that I think um, younger people really are interested in pursuing. You know, they recognize and they're able to talk about stress, anxiety, the challenges, um, mental health-wise, that so many of them are facing, and they understand that at a very young age. right? Second thing they understand is that um, I think they they work to live rather, and, and, and rather than living to work, which means that they're trying to 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 find something um, through their work that they're that they're, they can be passionate about. It could be anything. You know, it could be any it, it could be any skill or delivery of service or product or just hard work. They want to feel good about their work, um, be, but they also know that um, it's incredibly important to save time. You know, for friends, family, pursuing other interests, etc. I mean, those two or three characteristics. It takes so many of us like decades if we can ever find that balance, and that is really what I think mm-hmm. younger people. Uh, think about when they when they when they think about the American
2: dream. I want to go back to what you were saying about patriotism and the kind of splashy articles that come out. I think we've also seen similar splashes about young American support for democracy. I'm thinking about uh, the Yasha Monk study, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that came out some years ago and there have been others since. So how do you fit you know attitudes and support for democracy. Is it the same thing you were saying? There's kind of a lack of trust or or a lack of validation that that might be perhaps behind some of that.
3: Well, I think I think uh, it's. I think about I think about that. I think about capitalism. I think I think about democracy and I think about capitalism. And I think they question it. Say like, how well has it been working for us? Right. You know, and it's not the. Uh, I don't think it's a rejection of democracy. I don't think it's a rejection of capitalism. I don't think it's a rejection of the representative government is that they want to make sure that it lives up to its 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 definition, you know, to, to provide opportunities for Americans. Um, and and uh, they believe in a kind of in a in a, in a robust Governments to solve, help solve some of these systemic challenges, but obviously at the same time they have failing grades when they ask about you know our institutions. So I think it's just much more nuanced, and I think I, I think just because people question capitalism doesn't mean they're socialists. If they question democracy, it doesn't mean they're looking for authoritarian uh, or, or uh, sort of government. Although there certainly are some, um, there certainly are cohorts you know, who, who are interested in having that conversation. And specifically, if you have a, a, a the next question, when you ask this in a, in a conversation, the question's going to be about the elites, right? I mean, the answer will be about the elites. The answer will be about, uh, you know, Citizens United. The answer will be about money and politics. And is that really democracy? That's the conversation that young people are, are having. They're far more, I think, sophisticated than we might give them credit for.
2: The other person i thought about when i was reading your book was the work of jonathan Haidt, who you know in in his book the coddling of the american mind and i think he's working on one now called something like what's the matter with gen z but you know he often frames this generation as coddled or fragile or because of he says you know social media, the influence of social media, and, you know, overactive parenting. But I mean, I, I think that just seems to me to be a very stark contrast to the picture you paint of this generation. Your book is called Fight, right? And so I know that, you know, no, of course, no cohort is is a monolith, but I, I wonder if you can help me square that circle a little bit um, for, you know, how to, is it, are we able to hold these two thoughts in our head at the same time? Or, you know, how do you square, what you see versus you know that other framing.
3: I think we can hold both thoughts. I think both things can be true at the same time. I think that. I think that uh, over cuddling, you know, um, is something that um, is an issue. Uh, you know, or a or, or, or facts, right? Or or element of this. By the way, you know, young people don't over don't cuddle themselves. Their parents do their Gen Z parents, raise them to be a certain way, right? Um, and perhaps that's part of the reason there's so much stress, you know, when they may want to have a different path or different approach, you know, um, than, than, than their parents. Um, on the question of fragility, I think that's probably where I have mm. the, uh, the most, you know, a, a, a disagreement, right? Because mm. when there's stress, you can do one of two things. Right. You can flee or you can fight. And what I find and I talk about, you know, one little element of this in the book is. That young people standing up for justice, I think, in every aspect of their lives and whether that like potentially it brings me a lot of joy to see like the difficult conversations young people having at the cafeteria in high school. You know, when one person sees another young person being bullied or being marginalized or being picked on in some way, the ability for that young person who is often very vulnerable, right, to stand up to that act of injustice. I've seen that dozens and dozens of times around around the country when I ask the right questions of people, right? I don't assume anything. I ask them open-ended questions about, you know – what's a, you know, what keeps you up at night or have you had a difficult conversation? And I, and I hear this back, but I also see this in kind of in the broader perspective, you know, from obviously from the news of the last couple of days, you know, or the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks, you know, regarding Wisconsin and, 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 and Tennessee um, uh, and the impact that those young people have all the way to this historic level of civic participation and voting. Like those, those examples, are are not examples of 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 a, of a reactionary, fragile, mm-hmm. coddled generation. That's someone who understands injustice is not willing to stand for it, and it is I think having a significant impact already on our democracy. There's no question about it.
2: Yeah, let's let's talk about Wisconsin. Uh, I think as as you were kind of alluding to, that is a, a good. Um, case for you know Gen Z's increase in in voting and organizing and other forms of, of political engagement. Um, tell us what the, the role that young people played in the most recent judicial election. There,
3: I think this is part of the best case study of of, of a youth strategy in modern history that I can think of. Right, and the reason is it, it was an off year. An off, off-year election, right? It was um, uh, a rel- up until recently a relatively obscure election for a Supreme Court, um, and with although there was you know million tens of millions of dollars spent around the state, a relatively small group of people, you know, uh, and I'm so proud of him, Teddy Landis, who was the chair of my Harvard Opinion Project here at the IOP who then was inspired to start Harvard Votes Challenge, You know, was one of the main organizers here. And him with a team of 12 other folks and a hundred campaign fellows who were paid a, a small stipend for the t- participation, not only were able to organize their campus, uh, the, the dozen plus campuses across the, the Wisconsin system, but they did so at a level of which no one would have suggested would be possible, which is, the turnout was as low as 75, as high as I think 95 or 99 percent what the general election turnout was just a few months ago when you had a governor and a senator there. Um, not only that, but even in the most conservative precincts, um, which I think might have been in Green Bay, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the progressive candidate that they were uh, supporting received I think a minimum of 75 percent of a vote. But these are numbers. This is the second cycle in a row we're seeing seventy-five, a 90 percent of the vote going towards uh, essentially kind of pro reproductive rights candidates, Democrats, how, however you want to kind of define that. Um, and there was real joy in that for these for these young people, right? They, you know, there was some mentorship from former state party officials, but they really turned over the apparatus to younger people, to talk to other younger people. And and what Jenna, I think, is the key to this is that they essentially did three things. They spent the first you know, part of that campaign just educating young people. Mm-hmm. They had, in, in a non-partisan way, they had nonpartisan voter guides that, um, that I think they were fairly significant. So some of them were more printed. Others were available online to QR code. But just to talk about... What the issues are, who the candidates are, in a nonpartisan way, respect younger people to do their own homework. Right, that's part one. We don't do enough of that, I think, um, in in politics today, to to really kind of to to help them, young people, think about how to organize their thoughts on this. One. The second thing is, you know, they talked about the importance of this, you know, um, and the relevance of this, and to make sure that their attitude was square in terms of knowing how important it would be. And third. You know, they did everything they could to break down the traditional barriers to participation. Mm-hmm. Yes, they were aided by same-day registration. Um, certainly had a significant impact and made their job easier. But um, when when Teddy did gave me a debrief last week, he turned he talked about like the spectacle that um, his peers were able to create. You know, from from you know people running around in judges costumes to, uh, you know, several hundred judges gavels on one of the hills, you know, outside the quad at one of the universities. And there was just real joy in uh, creativity um, around this. And I thought that was just terrific and a case study that all of us can learn from.
2: So, uh, you know, the the other piece of this when it comes to building political power is that, you know, The boomer generation in particular has been in power for so long and isn't going anywhere, at least in the near term. Uh, My colleague here at Penn State, Kevin Munger, has has written on this. I know Philip Bump has a new book out all about this as well. But how do you. I mean, how, how palpable is the frustration about the fact that like there is this fighting spirit, right? There's this, we want to make change. We're trying to do it everywhere we can, but yet there's, there, there's still, you know, my my colleague, Kevin Munger calls it the boomer ballast, right? That's going to like prevent this. Like how, how palpable is, is that in, in your work?
3: it's palpable, I suppose, between Gen Z and Boomers, but I think real like what 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 um fires up Boomer or fires up Gen Z isn't boomers necessarily, it's the system, right? Mm-hmm. And what boomers represent, which is like the institution um, and kind of the sense of elitism in in money and politics and the fact that like we've got several systemic issues in this country that aren't being resolved or in some cases um, being made know, worse, worse oh. worsening, worsening, right? So that's, so I don't think it's like personal in terms of zoomers and boomers mm-hmm. on the zoomer side. However, what is palpable, what is palpable is the boomer zoomer relationship, right? So I talked a little bit about this book. I've asked this question so many times in so many different ways. And essentially, if you ask like a basic favorability question, Right, about whether you do like a thermometer scale or you say uh fave, unfave in terms of like the relevant the relative like contribution different groups were making to society given like their age or whatever. Um, Gen Z has a roughly you know neutral position regarding boomers, right? Some like them, some dislike them. When you ask boomers, it's two-thirds have a negative impression of Gen Z, one third have a positive or favorable impression. And that's dangerous uh, because, number one, it's their kids or those grandkids. But these are also like the young men and women who are sacrificing um, for public service, who are serving in the military and and, and on the front lines of so many things. And to have such um, harshly negative views for no other reason other than a label I think is is a significant is a significant concern because I think it is one of the most significant. I just think it it um, it really further weakens, you know, one of the last institutions that used to have uh, trust across mm-hmm. uh, ideological spectrum, which is the military.
2: And I, I want to just talk for a second about. Um... Gen Z and the far right, you know, at here at Penn State, we had leaders of the Proud Boys come to campus last fall, it was kind of a big to do. So, you know, as, as we just said there, this, this generation is overwhelmingly you know, more progressive than conservative, but how are, and I also know that far right groups are very good at making inroads with people and kind of getting people on board. And so uh, how is that all playing out? Have you, what are, what have those conversations been like in the, in the, the work that you've done?
3: So clearly that is, you know, a, a concern in terms we talk about like the vulnerable. And we talked a little bit, not too much about, about COVID, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lack of like civic education and, and, and mental health. So if you like, if you, if you did a summary of the last several minutes of our conversation, there are enough pieces there that um, put in the hands, right. Of an individual, a group of individuals who, 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 wanted to kind of, you know, prey upon those fears and take um, vulnerable people into a pretty dark place to have some success and they are having success. You know, one of the more prolific, um, you know, spreaders of, of, of hate white nationalism and white supremacy is a Gen Z group, right, Patriot Front. I don't want to give them, you know, uh, more attention than they deserve but um, that's something that came, it was like a branding effort, frankly, that came out of Charlottesville, right? We had uh, one, according to the justice system, one of the more dangerous members of the Gen 6 insurrection I talk about in the book, again, a teenager, um, empowered by his parents but a part of of gen Z and breaking news um, as I was walking over back to the office here I, I believe that we'll find out that the that the individual responsible for the leaks in the uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. Russia is a is a is a 21 year old Gen Zer from Massachusetts you know coming from an online community a, that kind of spread information around, kind of guns and racism, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. clearly, it kind of exists. I don't. I think the proportion of, of 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 individuals who kind of fit those categories is much smaller with this generation than others, but it's still there, and it's a, a deep concern. I think that's something that, frankly, Washington needs to spend more, you know, of, of their kind of public attention on in terms of of um, of understanding the psychology. Of these communities because i don't think everyone's looking i don't think these individuals all of them are necessarily looking to join a hate group you know or a far right militant militia i think they're looking for community looking for camaraderie that they don't find somewhere else and you know it can and can obviously lead into some pretty dark places so we have to be very cognizant of that um and just just a, as i as i think about this one of the uh, more memorable events
2: you know, John, as we, we wrap up here, uh, I guess I, I have two questions for you. One is, as we said at the very beginning, you study young people in politics broadly. So uh, w- how long will you kind of stick with Gen Z? You also say in the book, Gen Alpha is is coming up behind them. These are uh, people born after 2012, I believe. So they're kind of hitting puberty age right now or getting close to it. Um, and then also like what, uh, if, if, uh, if you stick with, Gen Z, like, what are you going to be watching for as they age, as they enter, you know, their late twenties, the oldest of them, and you know, go on from there.
3: I I, I get more inspired every day. You know, I've been and uh, and, and, and because because the you know asking questions and, and just seeing um, uh, how much optimism I think and hopefulness, you know, even in such a dark period, I think in our history that young people have not just on. On this campus, but on your campus, and so many campuses, and so many high schools across the country. So, um, hopefully, I'll I'll be able to to continue um, spending time with the young Americans, Gen Elf, and who knows what's after that. Maybe uh, if I'm lucky enough to do that as well. Um, I am also though like interested in 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 the Harvard Project starts with folks who are 18, right? But to spend more time with 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 high schoolers, I think it's important from a political point of view, but also like on the mental health and cultural point of view. So that's something that in the next year, I've done more of that in the last year than I have before, but continue to kind of understand eighth, ninth, 10th graders, 12th graders, et cetera. That's that. Um, But I also think as comprehensive as our survey has been, we've done this now 45 semesters, it's expanded in, in some meaningful ways beyond its like core mission, i'm I'm interested in, again the questions around work, the questions around what makes you happy. the questions are around like where folks want to live, you know and the implications that have for themselves or happiness but also politically you know in terms of uh of work so um in in terms of how they are kind of reshaping um not just politics but their communities, yeah.
2: Great. Well, I hope uh, folks uh, will check out your book and subscribe to your Substack. We'll link to that as well. I know you're sharing lots of good insights there. Uh, John Della Volpe, really appreciate you joining us today.
3: It's been uh, a true honor. Thanks, Jenna, uh, for the time. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jenna, for that great interview and um, John for joining us and kind of bringing these issues to the forefront. One thing that stands out to me about why this conversation is so important is partially uh, because just sheer numbers. It is uh, predicted that by 2028, that's five years from now, uh, Gen Z and millennials combined will make up half of the electorate. I think this is important and things that we've talked about along the way um, on the pod is the proportion of voters matters, but they we also have to keep in mind the degree to which um, there are institutional constraints set up by current policymakers, like gerrymandering and court decisions that will be um, difficult to overturn once they are kind of considered settled in common sense, but that it, it does matter what the size of the electorate is and how important Gen Z is going to play a part here. But we also have to keep in mind um, the limitations that are set up because of these rules around, let's say, voting, for example. There are legislators right now trying to prevent polling stations from being placed at universities. For example, but needless to say, um, all the trash that people talk about the youth, I think, is in, in part because they know how important the youth is and will be over over the course of time.
0: Right, and it's it's only going to increase. Right, uh, Robert Putnam once said that the 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 most striking uni- uh, euphemism he ever heard was that people were exiting the voting rolls, which is to say they were dying. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know the boomers, that's already happening, and um, it's only going to continue, and and so the the rise of the uh, uh, the Gen Z, the Zoomers, is is only going to increase, and and you know um, when you see how these the issues that that this generation is concerned about, you know it's no wonder. That, um, that Republicans are anxious to, you know, forced, at minimum, forestall the inevitable as long as possible. The one thing I just want to say is that I think it's really striking from a mental health point of view that um, we have this, you know, pervasive sense of depression and anxiety and that that has manifested itself in political organizing and this uh, will to fight, because those don't normally go together, right? Mm. Normally, depression and anxiety causes you to isolate, to withdraw, and that is not what's happening. And um, uh, John talks about that, and um, and actually David uh, Hogg has talked about that too, in terms of you know why that is, and you know they'll talk about how social media. Has uh, you know given them this because they're so f- um, their facility with that is so great that they um, just naturally use that to organize and so that's part of it.
1: I wanted to go back first to something that you said about um, forestalling the inevitable that the GOP, for example, is doing all of these things and suggesting all of these things to forestall the inevitable. But again, just kind of thinking broader is that none of these things are inevitable that just for just as well as for Democrats, that demographics is not destiny, that the Republican party could do something different. That's why it's not inevitable, but the issues that, um, this, that concern this group are, um, abortion, our climate change, our structural racism and inequality. And so we have, um, you know, policymakers and representatives can present a different kind of agenda that could be a winning one for a particular demographic group, and they refuse to do so. So um, it's it's not, you know, inevitable, but it is, I think, really important that we just kind of talk about the choices that um, policymakers, um, you know, put forward, and then that people must choose among those choices. I think, you know, one of the reasons, and I'm just kind of, you know, I think this business about the contradictions of, you know, depression, um, but activism and social media, but empathy, I think also is simply because um, we are in a state where policymakers have shown themselves to be poor role models, poor policymakers, poor representatives, that adults aren't adulting and the kids are like, someone has to do. Someone yeah. has to do the work.
0: This question of inevitability, I think that's, you know, obviously, you know, demographics are inevitable, right? We're all going to die. It's just who dies sooner, right? But the question of how that manifests itself politically is absolutely an open question. And I think uh, Democrats kind of feel like this is in their pocket, but it isn't, right? And, mm-hmm. and part of this is because of The anxiety, and also I think, you know, and this is where I I think I'm going to get a lot of um, pushback, but one of the polls that I just saw showed that um, uh, younger people have an approval rating for Joe Biden that's 36%. Mm -hmm. That's really bad, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't much worse for Trump, if it was worse at all. And I think that bespeaks a, you know, I'm just going to say it, a level of a lack of political sophistication, because, you know, while you can point to a few things like oil permits, drilling permits and things like that, um, Joe Biden has done more uh, f- with respect to the, you know, the Gen Z political agenda with a really crappy hand than i think most people could reasonably expect. And if you're not aware of that or not willing to a- account for that, then i think that pre- presents a political problem. And we can argue about whether i'm right about that, but all i'm saying is that if you know, if you expect the world to change in these dramatic ways in a pa- in a period of a few years, then you're going to be disappointed in a a democratic system. And if you're going to be disappointed, then you're going to be more open to more radical um, uh, and more extreme positions and not necessarily on a leftist or more progressive agenda. Um, And so,
1: you know, I think it's also important for us to really, and I think that John does a good work here, is to show that, this group, just as any group in their, you know, youth when they're coming of age are mirrors to ourselves. We see that in our own homes. When your kid turns around and points at you and says to you the thing that you've said a thousand times, right, like, <laughs> you know, you, you you that that same phenomena happens at a larger level. So if Gen Z is concerned about the quality of democracy, then we need to pay attention to that or capitalism or climate or mental health or whatever. If they are really keyed up about it, it's because um, the chances are that the abstract values that we're trying to teach them and the things, the way things play out, the gap is so big that they're trying to make sense of it. And so we need to be attuned um, to the fact that they're Issues are because our values and our priorities are not well aligned.
0: Right. No, I mean, clearly. And they're right to say that when you have 80%, you know, you have a, a series of policy initiatives that have this around gun control that have the support of over 80% of the American body politic, and yet we have shooting after shooting after shooting and nothing happens, that bespeaks. A problem with respect to the responsiveness and the and the um, the democratic uh, condition of American politics, and so they're absolutely right to point this out.
1: I wanted to point out one thing that really stood out to me in um, in uh, John's inter- interview is that he notes that Zoomers are neutral about Boomers, but Boomers are negative about Zoomers, and I think that's so dangerous and so bad and. People just need to grow up, and you know, um, for me, like that helps to make sense of what we see empirically—that um, why we don't necessarily have better gun laws, why we don't have more robust climate policy, why we see a movement away from funding and supporting public schools—is that if you, um, the people who are in power, are so far distant and also disdaining. Mm -hmm. um, groups that are most vulnerable, we have a problem. And so, you know, I really just not to put too fine a point on it, but I, I just think that that point was so important and so concerning, um, around what, what, what our quality of representation means and what our quality of democracy means when we have that dynamic.
0: So, you know, sometimes, you know, you may not know this listener, but sometimes by the end, we're kind of like running out of gas. But I don't feel like that's the case with this one at all. I think we could talk about this for hours. It is so fascinating and so important and such a moment in American history. So I just, uh, you know, John's book is, is very punchy and accessible. It's well worth your time. He is a great pollster with a lot of experience and um, such a fascinating topic and so important. So thanks to Jenna for a terrific interview. So for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Bean.
1: I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a
2: collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kubler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.